And we welcome you to this edition of the Plate Meeting, powered by Close Call Sports. I'm T Mac, alongside Gil, and we have a great episode for you this time, fellas. It's Rich Garcia, the 25-year Major League Baseball veteran. A lot to talk about, so let's get into our sponsors. Our title sponsor of the Plate Meeting is the OSIP Foundation, Incorporated, where OSIP stands for Outstanding Sportsmanship is Paramount, a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting good sportsmanship throughout sports and competition. Among their many programs offered is Official Anonymous, a hotline and support service for officials who suffer from abuse, anxiety, and other similar issues. To learn more about OSIP, to get involved, or to donate, please visit OSIPFoundation.org. Your donation may be tax-deductible. Once again, that's OSIPFoundation.org. And the Plate Meeting Podcast is brought to you by Pro Umpire Camp. The Pro Umpire Camp is an exciting opportunity to enhance your craft. Pro Umpire Camp provides students with 35 hours of classroom and on-field instruction of the three-man umpire system. You'll learn from current MILB umpires and MILB supervisors. You'll have the opportunity to showcase your skills during live games to top independent league supervisors, including Kevin Wynn of the Can-Am League and Ron Teague of the American Association. Also, the Atlantic League will be there. The Pro Umpire Camp from March 3rd through the 10th. It's in Spring, Texas. For more information, log on to ProUmpireCamp.com. And Gil, what do you have for us? Did you know that Close Call Sports is on social media? You can follow us on Twitter, at Umpire Ejections is the name. Or you can like us on Facebook also. It's uh, Facebook.com slash Umpire Ejections. And of course, visit the flagship website at www.CloseCallSports.com for articles, ejection reports. That's in the season and off season, mind you replay review analysis, and more umpiring content, including rules discussion and links to the Close Call Sports online store, a way to donate to us directly to help support the site and this very podcast. And all of that's available at www.closecallsports.com. Well, without further ado, Gil, it's uh, time to meet our guest. Between time acting in a major motion picture, working for CBS as a rules analyst, a Major League Baseball supervisor for a number of years and a devoted husband, father, and grandfather. Rich Garcia managed to fit in umpiring for 25 years and 3,000 games and four World Series, five American League Championship Series, and three Division Series. And he is the latest guest on the plate meeting. Rich, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be on. So I guess I have to begin the first World Series you ever saw was in 1954 with your father. Now, as someone from Florida, how did your father broach to you that he was going to attempt to take you to the 54 World Series between the Giants of New York at the time and the Cleveland Indians? Well, uh, I've always been a baseball fan. Uh, I was a fanatic baseball fan. I used to keep cards. I used to... So I was bugging him about going to the World Series. And uh, they, uh, at the time, my dad owned a restaurant, and we got a big uh, mustard jar, a big, uh, and we put money. Every time we had change, we'd throw it in the in the jar. And he said, we're going to, we get enough money, we're going to go to New York, we'll go to the World Series. 
Uh, of course, he was just kidding because you could never, you never put enough money in that in that big jar to go to New York. But anyway, we decided to go. Him and I drove from Key West, Florida, all the way to New York without tickets. Um, we um, he had a friend there that owned a bar, a bar restaurant, uh, and uh, we we ended up going there to, to have dinner and see if we can get some tickets and. Uh, I remember one night he said to me, you know, the only tickets we can find are $25 each. And I, and my answer was, well, what did we come up here for? <laughs> came up here to see the game. Now, you got to remember, in 19, 1954, $25 was a lot of money. <clears throat> so we went, uh, we went to the Polo Grounds and watched the Giants in Cleveland, which neither one of them were my teams, but um, that was fine. I, I enjoyed I remember watching Willie Mays. I saw Willie Mays make that catch. Uh, on Vic Works, and uh, uh, back then Willie Mays, in my eyes, was probably the greatest ball player I've ever 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 played the game. Um, he could do everything. And after the first two games in Cleveland, we drove—I mean, in New York—we drove to Cleveland. And believe it or not, at one time I was on the—I uh, was the in the attendance of the largest um, World Series game ever. Uh, I think I think it was seventy three or seventy four thousand people. Wow! And it had the rec- had the record at the time. And of course, that was broken um, when they had the World Series in the Coliseum in in L.A. So, <clears throat> so the following, the follow- yeah, the following year, nineteen fifty five, the Subway Series between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Yankees. There was no way you were missing that one. No, we went back. We drove back. We took my mom and my sister on that one. <clears throat> and uh, we uh, actually watched all seven games. We saw all seven games. Wow. Um, I remember Jackie Robinson stealing home and uh, Yogi Berra tagging him and the umpire calling him safe. Uh, that was awesome. You know, it's an awesome memory. The 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 biggest The biggest thing about it was um, you know, watching the Yankees and the Dodgers all those years on TV as a kid or listening to them on the radio, um, uh, we grew up with the Dodgers and the Yankees. And uh, and and the way it worked out in 1981, I, my first World Series, I happened to have the Yankees and the Dodgers, which uh, really, really um, was something uh, that really stayed with me forever. That 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 memory being a kid watching the Yankees and the Dodgers and then growing up being there at Yankee Stadium, uh, getting ready to go out on the field on that that first game was was really, really something I'll never forget. And you worked game four of that series at Dodger Stadium, a place that can can be tough to see. It was a day game, a two o'clock start, one forty five start, two hours and nineteen minutes the game time. On your crew, <laughs> yeah. Uh Nick oh, yeah. Corsi, Terry Cooney, Doug Harvey, uh, Dick Stello, and a, and a guy you'd work a lot of postseasons with, Larry Barnett, the crew chief of that series. Yeah, Larry and I happened to be, it looked like we happened to be on the same kind of rotation. We worked a lot of uh, <clears throat> a lot of um, postseason together. Um, it seemed like we always ended up uh, on the same, same crew. Yeah, that was a great game. Uh, the game I had behind the plate with uh, – um, Gidry, Ron Gidry and uh, Jerry Royce uh, pitched for the Dodgers. And uh, there was, I think there was three home runs in that game. 
and the score uh, score ended up being two to one. Uh, the Dodgers, I believe, the Dodgers hit two uh, two home runs, back to back home runs. Uh, Jaeger and Guerrero, and then I think Panella hit a home run for the Yankees. If I, if my memory serves me right. So we work kind of in a non-linear linear approach here, which is fine. But I want to find out when did you, did you become fascinated with umpiring, and what made you take the leap to go to umpire school in 19, uh, 1970? Uh, well, it's kind of a long story. Like I said, I I was in the Marine Corps and I I was playing baseball in the Marine Corps, um, and I had a <clears throat> couple couple scholarship offers. Uh, and up in uh, Wilmington College, Wilmington College was a, um, a two-year school at the time. It was junior college at the time, and we played a lot against uh, the North Carolina and South Carolina teams of Virginia. And being, you know, being in Camp Lejeune, we got to play against those college teams quite a bit. <clears throat> and I also got a got an offer from University of North Carolina. Um, in the back of my mind, I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't think that I was going to take those offers. Probably, if I would have, it probably would have been <clears throat> to the junior college because, to be honest with you, my grades in school were not that good. I wasn't a, a scholar. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I went, I went more to play, more to play sports and have fun than, than go to school. But um, I, I came home. I came back to Key West, and uh, I got married. Uh, <clears throat> And back then, you didn't go to school. You know, you didn't get married and go to school. You you got married, you went to work. Um, I was I was working. Uh, I was coaching a high school team in in Key West, uh, Barry Immaculate High School, which was a Catholic high school. <clears throat> and I really really enjoyed it, but I was I didn't make any money. Uh, so one night. I was home, and uh, one of the guys, one of my neighbors who was an umpire, came over and said to me, uh, hey, listen, I'm working a doubleheader fast-pitch softball. My partner my partner just called me. He got sick. I don't have anybody to help me umpire. Would you go and stand on the bases and help me umpire? And I said, I will go, but I'm not going to stand on the bases. If I go, I'm going to work behind the plate. I worked one of the games behind the plate. You can't do that. You've never umpired in your life. I said, I know, but that's that's the deal. I go, I umpire. I'm not. I'm not going. <laughs> so he let me umpire, and I I loved it. I just fell in love with the with the. I, I don't. I really don't know what I fell in love with. I fell in love because my wife always says, "Why would anybody want to be an umpire?" She keeps saying that over and over. <laughs> So anyway, um, I enjoyed it that day, and uh, I started I started doing the um, little league. I did some little league games. I did some pony league games. I did some uh, amateur games. Then I did uh, high school. I started doing some high school. This went fast. You know, obviously in Key West, we don't have a lot of a lot of umpires. And back then, you know, we it was just very very uh, few people that would want to do it. And one day I was, uh, Key West had, Key West had a junior college for a few years. They had a baseball team and I was, I, I umpired, I was working home plate one night, the junior college, the Key West junior college team against, uh, 
Miami-Dade North. And Demi Maneri was the uh, the manager for Miami-Dade North. And in the first inning, in the first inning of the game, I had to play at the plate. And I threw the manager out for Key West. And, of course, everybody was going nuts. But after the game, uh, Demi Maneri came over and asked me, he said, did you ever, ever consider uh, umpiring professionally? And I said, I've never even thought about it. And he said, well, I think you should. He says, does anybody that would throw out the manager for Key West in the first inning here in Key West has got a lot of guts and, you know, you could. I think you got you got the talent to make it. Well, guts and, and integrity, was, <clears throat> guts and integrity are something that follows you through throughout your career. Um, so, I, I wanted to touch on this. This is a you, you graduate in '60, but it's not till '70 that you get to umpire school. So, what when is this per se in this journey? Well, uh, you know, I went into service right out of high school. I was 18 years old when I went into the Marine Corps. Yep. Um, and I I was in there for four years. So I came out, I was 22, 23 years old. Um, and then, um, like I said, you know, hung around a little bit. I, you know, like I said, I coached a high school team. And then uh, in, 19, in 1969, I, I, I got divorced. And I was working in the post office and I I. I made my mind up I was going to go to umpire school. And I quit the job. I should have taken a leave of absence. That was a stupid move on my part. Another second stupid move. Um, I took, I just, I just left. And when I, uh, I got to umpire school, it was here in St. Petersburg at uh, Gulfport. And uh, so I went to school. I got a job right out. I got a job out of, Florida State League, right out of umpire school. Um, I worked in Florida State League two years, one year in the Double A in the Southern League, um, and then two years in Triple A. Of course, I went. I, I umpired in the winter. I, I worked either instructional league or winter ball. I went to the Dominican Republic as a Double A umpire, which back then you didn't do. That wasn't you know that wasn't a thing to do, but I went. Uh, I went. I went to the Dominican Republic twice to umpire. That makes it then in seventy-two, um, yeah, seventy-two and seventy-four, I believe, or okay. seventy-two, seventy-two, maybe seventy-three. Seventy-two and seventy-three is what I is what I found, but it could be yeah, wrong. Se- no, seventy-two and seventy-three, seventy-four. Um, I worked. I stayed here and worked in. I uh, worked the instructional league. In Florida, then then we had what they what they call today the World Baseball Classic. We had the World Baseball Amateur um, uh, Games here in St. Pete, and uh, I worked I worked those um, back then in seventy. That was in seventy four. Then in seventy five, I got to the big leagues. So, in this day and age, if you have worked zero Major League Baseball games, you are not getting hired. Uh, to work in Major League Baseball. What was it like taking the field in 1975? Your crew on opening day was Bill Haller, uh, Armando Rodriguez, and Ron Luciano. You worked third base. What was it like to take the field after having no experience uh, as a Major League Baseball umpire, the American League umpire, and who told you you were getting hired? 
Well, I was in, uh, Dick Butler is the one that called me and told me I got hired, uh, during the winter. Um, right, right around, right around, it's, uh, I think it was right around Christmas, right around, um, the first of the year, 1975, the first of the year, he told me I was getting hired. Um, and that first game in Texas, I remember standing on third base, standing over there, looking at the national, uh, listening to the national anthem and thinking, what am I doing here? All these, <laughs> all these, all these people got <clears throat> Billy Martin. Billy Martin was on the other, in the other dugout and manager of Texas at the time. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but Billy Martin was my favorite player when I was a kid. <laughs> four nights, four nights later, I ended up ejecting yep. it. My first, my first ejection in the big leagues was so your, Billy Martin. So your first play job, April eleventh, nineteen seventy-five. Not only do you get Billy Martin for a fair foul decision, but Coach Frank Lucchese covered home plate in dirt. So, uh, yeah. what, what were you thinking on on that night? I wasn't thinking. Anything. I thought I was doing great. I was uh, after the game was over. Ron Luciano came running down from third base and picked me up, carried me off the field like I, like we just won the the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> and Bill Haller, who was my crew chief, you know, he kept he just said, "Hey, great job. Just just keep doing what you're doing. You're gonna be fine." So I took him. I took I took that I took that to heart. So my next play job, I got three more guys. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you feel like they were taking runs at you just because they didn't know who you were? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Back then, that's that's the way it was. It was back then. It was uh, you worked by intimidation. You know, you try to intimidate the umpires. Uh, if you let them intimidate you, they continue to yell at you. Uh, you put a stop to it uh, as early as you can. And you know, I had a great, great leader and Bill Haller. Um, Bill was awesome with me. He treated me like, like I'd been there for 20 years and, uh, he gave me all the encouragement that I needed. Um, Luciano did the same thing as far as encouragement, encouragement went. Ron was a, Ron was a great guy to have on your crew. Um, cause you never, you know, as far as Ron was concerned, we never made a mistake. You know, I'd come in. I'd come in after a game, and uh, there was a pitch that was, you know, that the guys argued about. The players were arguing about. It might have been a high pitch. I'd come in and I'd say, um, "You guys think that ball was high on so and so?" Ron would say, "Heck no! That ball was right down the middle, right, right, right on his belt." <laughs> Obviously, I knew there was. That's not true. It wasn't down. It, it, it might have been down the middle, but it was just sure wasn't on the belt. Because it would have been on the belt, I probably wouldn't have got an argument. It had to be up here somewhere close to, to being high. And remember, we wore the outside protector back then. Mm-hmm. So it was it was that that high pitch was always a question <clears throat> whether it was right or not. But I got a lot of encouragement. I got a lot of help. Um, Bill Haller was uh, behind me a hundred percent on everything I did on the field, and he just kept encouraging me just keep doing the same thing he said in five years these guys will leave you alone it's it really is an amazing career and we're going to get to more of this in in, in a second rich but you know in 1983 
on opening day, you're a crew chief. Uh, your, your partners to start were Al Clark, Vic Vitaglio, Mike Riley. Uh, I guess Don Denkinger was out uh, for, for a little bit of time. This is year one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, year nine in the big leagues. You had been a, a four-man or a three-man, and somebody had enough faith on you, uh, faith in the American League office to put you as the crew chief on opening day. Um, how did that? Well, how did that work out? That, that worked out fine, but I had been um, I had been a crew chief um, for a week um, before that. I'm trying to think what the what the year was. Um, Something there, something, something came up that some the crew chief, some you know, we started with the vacations when, and uh, so it had to be, it had to be after '79. It was, I think, it was either '80, '81. Um, Weaver was still managing the Orioles, and I don't remember who the manager for the Yankees was, but we had a five-game series in Baltimore with the Yankees. We had a. Uh, uh, we had a Friday, I think it was a Friday doubleheader. We had Saturday, we had a Sunday, and a Monday. A makeup game, I believe that it was. And it, it was uh, uh, myself, Steve Palermo, Al Clark, and Dale Ford was the crew. And it was all because something something about the vacations, there was a mix-up, guys two senior guys that put in for vacation at that time. And, and, and I was a crew chief. I don't think, I, I don't believe I had 10 years in yet. I don't believe I had 10 years. I think I had, I think I had maybe seven. I'm not sure. I'm not hundred percent sure, <clears throat> but it wasn't that big of a deal at that time. Um, uh, it was only for a week. Um, and I was questioning why he did this <laughs> with Baltimore and the Yankees. We were on one side. And I don't remember who the manager. Billy Martin was not the manager for the Yankees at that time. It might have been Hauser. Um, it might have been Hauser or Lemon. I'm not sure. I, I'm really not sure when it was. But it was a five-game series that um, that we had in uh, in Baltimore. I gave, I became a crew chief in 1985. I'm almost sure. Ten years. I think I had yep. ten years in when uh, Dick Butler. Yeah, uh, came to me and he said, uh, "I'm I'm going to make you a crew chief." And uh, you know, they passed over a couple guys. They passed over three or four guys. I'm not sure who they were at the time, but I know I wasn't the senior guy for that at that time. Um, and uh, uh, he he came to me and he we were having some friction back then with the office, as we always did, the umpires and <laughs> the league office. And Big Butler said to me, he said, "I'm going to make you a crew chief, but one of one of the things about being a crew chief is you have to you have to talk to your supervisor. You can't ignore them when they walk in the locker room, guys. <laughs> so, so I I had to make a pact that yeah I will I will talk to you when you come in. So your crew at eighty five was uh, Greg Kosk, Rick Reed, and Tim McClelland. And you that was your first year. Correct. As that was my team. first crew. Yep, that was my first crew. Yep. And uh, Reed yep. stuck with you for the next one two, four years. Um. I want to get back to 79 for a second. This was okay. the strike year. Um, Correct. A lot, of, a lot of things happened here. Can you take me through uh, how you guys made the decision to strike? Well, I 
at the time I was a young umpire. I was only only had four years in, and I was you know um, I was just going um, going with the union. I did what uh, they said they were going to do. We had the senior Bill Haller was one of the leaders. <clears throat> I mean, if Bill Haller was going to give up, you know, give up his job. Um, to do something good for the empire, so for the betterment of the of, of the empire profession, I sure I was gonna I sure I was gonna go along with it. So I was kind of on, you know, I'm going, I'm riding on Bill's hip that you know this is something that we need to do. We just needed to do it, and uh, we stuck together. And uh, you know, the we had we really had uh, technically had everything on our side at the time because the the judge had decided. Um, in Philadelphia when we went to court, the judge had decided that we were technically free agents because what back then, even though we had a basic agreement, we also had individual contracts. So at the end of every season, our, our individual contract ran out. That was it. So technically, every year, we were we were technically free agents. Not that we could go anywhere else, but, but we were free agents. Mm-hmm. You know, we were we were, and that's what the judge hung his hat on, and said, "Well, you guys, you know, they you guys have a right to go on strike. You know, you're not you're not the the basic agreement doesn't mean anything." And that was Richie Phillips' strategy at the time um, to forfeit the basic agreement at that time and to get another one something a little bit more lucrative. I don't know of a tougher position to be, and I happen to know a AAA umpire from 79 that was offered. He was told, take the job. You'll be in consideration for a big league job, or at the end of 79, we're going to fire you from AAA. I don't know if there is more of a Sophie's choice, because he got fired at the end of 79 uh, and did not cross, than that decision. How was your relationship with the guys who crossed the picket line that were AAA umpires who ended up getting hired in the future? The relationship, there was none. Yeah. There was no relationship. <clears throat> you know, they went, they went against us and we just, you know, as far as we were concerned, there were scabs and, you know, we, we just didn't, we communicated as, as least as we could. Mm-hmm. That's that, that was it. Um, um, did, did it ever uh, change for, did, or was it always just going to be that way from now until infinitum? Well, it, 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 are you talking about, you, you want to say that it's ever changed? You mean the relationship with, the, with yeah, those I mean, guys? Can it change? I mean, can you see the others? I'm just the first time we've had a chance to talk to somebody who was involved in the 79 strike and, you know, uh, and no, it, I, I, I tell you, I, yeah. And, I see what you're. I see what you're getting at. You're getting at the idea of. of um, first of all, <clears throat> first of all, the the guys, the guys that the guys that took the job. There's only one guy in that group that got hired that that was going to have an opportunity to get a big league job. Mm-hmm. All right, and that was John Shulock. Out of that, out of that whole group, he's the only one that could that can umpire. The rest of those guys already had been rejected. Okay. As a matter of, as a matter of fact, um, Dave Pallone had been fired from the uh, Winter League um, for some reason, some some other reason, some reason. He had been let go, the Winter League. 
and the minor leagues were just getting just getting ready to release them. Um, for whatever reason, they brought them back and uh, and uh, hired them as one of the umpires to to work. Um, and, you know, so there was they, they, those guys were, you know. I can I you know if I could sit you know I could sit here now and tell you well you know I didn't care if they did it or not but at the time at the oh, time sure. they were at the time you know they're trying they're trying to take my job hundred percent you know they're trying you know they were trying to take my job so um and 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 the whole the the as far as I'm concerned me personally the the animosity um I don't think it was I shouldn't say animosity. I think the expectations with these guys, because I knew all these guys, especially John Shulock. I worked, I, I helped John Shulock at the umpire school. Um, he wanted to change his spring training assignment from, because he lived in Vero Beach, and for some reason they put him in Sarasota. And I changed that for him. I got him to go to Vero Beach so he could be home doing the instructional league. I spent a week over in Sarasota working with him. To make him a better umpire, I gave a, I, I invited him to my house for dinner. He he was you know, and when I when I called him, when I called him to talk to him about what we were doing, he shut he just shut me down. There was no consideration. So so that that one that one was uh, uh, for sure. But even then, even then, when I came back. When I came back as a supervisor, I I treated him just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. I didn't I, I you know uh, I knew that I had to put all that aside, and I had to treat these guys like everybody else. And uh, you know you know you get older you know I uh, I you forgive people you just forgive and you just you move on. You don't forget, but you forgive. Understood. You, you know you have to you have to realize that. Everybody doesn't have the same passion that you do. Um, at one time, at one time, I thought that uh, everybody had umpire the way that a certain group of guys did. <clears throat> that was the only way to do it. The arrogance, that arrogance, was just overflowing to the point where if they didn't umpire the same way you did, um, if you listen to people, if you would listen to a manager yelling at you, if you would just <laughs> uh, try to try to accommodate a manager or a player, um, man, that's, you're not in our group, buddy. You, that's not the way you do it. But that, that was just the arrogance and the, just the, the attitude that we had. <clears throat> well, I'll, I'll speak for myself that I had and, uh, you know, growing up in the game and seeing that there's, there's a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different ways to get to the end. You know, you don't, you don't, it's not one way to get there. There's a lot of roads to the end. <clears throat> and, and that's, and, and that, at that time, at that time, th- what those guys did were, you know, just unforgivable. That's all. It was just, and they were, and also, but, and the other thing, the biggest, and one of the biggest things in my heart was those guys that said no, that were that right there at the top of the list that was get that were getting ready to go to the big, that could have gone to the big leagues. <clears throat> that had the ability to go to the, 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 the big league umpires. I guess and they the, had the guts. They had the guts to say no. I, I guess the greater question is why the heck was the American League, or the National League for that matter, 
so mean to to the umpires. I mean, how can you tell a guy that, hey, if you don't break the picket line, we're going to fire you, and then follow through and fire some of those guys? It's abhorrent what the American League and National League did to its minor league umpires, in in my opinion. Well, in, uh, well in, if you in nineteen in the in the early seventies, excuse me, in the early seventies, um, the the league offices treated the umpires like crap. We we were never ever given any respect um, until Richie Phillips Richie Phillips came into effect. When Richie Phillips was hired in nineteen seventy eight. Um, uh, that's, that's when things started to change and, and he's the one, he's the one that gave us and treated us with respect and said, you guys need to be treated with respect and you're not being, you're not, you're not being treated with respect. You guys do a good job. You deserve to get more money. You deserve to, uh, to be in a better position than you're in. Your family deserve it. You guys put your you putting your butt out there on the on the on the line every night. And he gave us that he gave us that confidence that that's that that's what you do, <clears throat> and that you're not going to be we're not going to be treated like that. And we fought back, and we and, fought uh, back, and we and we won, and more, we started we started getting the things that we that we deserved. Started getting treated like humans, and uh, exactly. And, and I thank you for that because it tended to trickle down to uh, on, on, in a lot of ways, and it still does. Um, yeah, it still you know. does. But you know what? A lot of the guys don't remember it. They forget that. They forget where where they're getting all this money they're getting, and all the all the uh, the pensions and the medicals that you know we had to fight for that. So there you was, didn't that have... was, none of none of that stuff was given to us. We had to That's fight for that. You had no <laughs> medical. And no benefits when you came up as a full-time American League umpire. Well, we had we had benefits, but they were very, okay. very, 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 very little. Yeah, we had benefits. Okay, we had we had benefits. We had we had a pension. <clears throat> you know, we had a pension. Uh, we had a we had a thrift plan um, that 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 they uh, that they had for us. Um, I made fourteen thousand dollars my first year in the big leagues. Wow. $23, $23 a day per diem. So, you know, that's, that's, that, that might sound like, no, 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 today that's ridiculous, but at the time it was, it was, you know, okay. But think about what the guys in the minor leagues were making. Peanuts. You know, guys in the minor leagues, not only that, they, they never even had, you know, you had to buy your own uniform to give you a shirt. Then they then they started giving you pants. You had to go look for your own shoes. You had to go look for your own hats. <clears throat> That's why everybody had different kinds of things. When the when the AAA umpires were coming to spring training, they didn't have a uniform. They had to wear their AAA uniform or wear one of our shirts. So in let's continue on the the Richie Phillips path here because you're getting so much. You're getting more. You're getting more. You're getting more, and then it happens. The mass resignation, yeah. 22 accepted. You're the first person we talked to that had the resignation accepted who didn't come back to Major League Baseball initially. Um, you did it as supervisor role. Was that part of the arbitration 
uh, that you got the supervisor's job? No, absolutely not. Okay. No. So no. Uh, it said no. you were the consulting. arbitration. Uh, the, uh, the when we went when we when we went to uh, mediation and we went we went to the arbitration. Uh, the American League guys, the, the American League case was a whole lot different than the National League case. And our attorney, who was not, and it wasn't Richie Phillips, we hired a we hired a, uh, an arbitration attorney who was awful, I think, my opinion, because uh, I could see that that the American League version of this was one way and the national league version was the other the american league the, the american league guys the 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 guys that resigned that didn't go back they accepted our resignation like they accepted my resignation and they replaced me the national league guys because nobody went back or very few of them went back they had too many umpires. So then what they did is they went back and said, okay, um, uh, Frank, please, can, Frank, you're, uh, you're done. You're retired. You're, you're too old. Uh, Terry Tata, you're too old. Um, well, you can't, when they went, when they appealed and they went to court, they had to bring, they had to not bring them back. They had, at least they didn't want to come back. So they, had, they gave them all the money that they had lost. They had to pay those guys. Not only did they have to pay them, but they had to put them in the put them in the pension plan of the new guys of the 2000 pension plan, which was big because the, our pension uh, the the pension plan that the what we call what we call the 99 pension plan wasn't as good as the 2000 pension plan. Rich, so, we too. We took some user questions to go along. Uh, Noah England wanted to know, if you weren't part of the resignation, how many more years did you plan on umpiring before retiring? Well, um, I, was, I was debating that to retire in 98, after the 98 season. They, offered, um, they were offering a deal at the time, which I think uh, Don Denkinger took, um, Wendell Statt took, um, Ted Hendry took, uh, Derwood Merrill took. There was a bunch of guys that took that deal. And the deal, they bought you out. I don't remember exactly what the, the monies were, but the biggest thing at that time was the fact that you were going to be able to, to join the pension plan that was going to be negotiated in the year 2000 or 2001, whatever it was. That was the deal. The next pension plan that was that was going to be negotiated, you were going to be part of that. So your pension was going to be, you know, higher. But the, the amount of money, I don't remember. I thought about it. I thought about it. Um, I, actually, I talked to Frank Pulley about it, and Frank said, uh, "I don't think, I don't think it's a good time for you to leave. I think you got a, you got a chance. You know, you got a chance to make more money coming up um, because, you know, they're they're going to start picking. They're going to the part of the deal is going to be they're they're going to pick who what umpires they want to work the playoffs." in the world series and surely you're going to be picked and you're going to be working a lot of postseason, So you're going to make a lot of extra money. There's so, no, yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I said, I said, well, that makes sense to me. And I talked to my wife about it and she said, well, you're not really ready to get out yet. You know, I was, I think I was 57, 58 at the time, something like that. <clears throat> um, 
so really in the back of my mind, I was thinking maybe work another year, maybe two years. But you know what? I, being honest, being completely, completely honest with you, um, if, if I, if I probably, if I would have got as much money as these guys were getting, I might, I might have stayed a little longer. <laughs> to oh, tell you the mean, truth. I mean, Rich, you know, there's no reason know. to retire. 1998, you're the crew chief for the World Series. That crew you worked with: Mark Hirschbeck, Dale Scott, Dana Demuth, Tim Cheetah, Jerry Crawford. Um, there's no reason to think at that point that you're not going to work at least one more World Series in the next five years. Oh yeah, right, right. Yeah, it was all that you know, all that stuff. <laughs> I thought, I thought, well, you know, all right. Um, never, I, I never ever thinking that that any of this stuff was going to happen. You know, I, I, I had complete, complete confidence that that we would get something worked out. I always, I always felt that we were going to get something worked out. That this, this is not going to happen. You know, we're never going to, we're never just going to be left out. Um, and I thought, like always, we we were always given at any time we had any of these negotiations or you know anything that came up, we were we were always given an ultimatum. Uh, for, if you don't do this by this date, this is going to happen. And most of the guys would, you know, most of the guys would say, okay, you know, we've, we've gone as far as we can go. This is as far as we can go. <clears throat> Let's take whatever it is that they're giving us and, and move on and we'll fight again some other day. That's normally the things that happen. <clears throat> Major League Baseball never gave us an ultimatum, never gave us a date um, to come back. To say, okay, if you're not back by a certain day, that's it, you're done. Now, after being a consultant for the commissioner's office, you get hired as a supervisor uh, in 2002. Um, how did that all come about? Well, they, what um, Ralph Nelson and Sandy Olerson um, were in charge at the time. <clears throat> um, Frank, Frank Pulley and Steve Palermo um, which were very, they were very, very good friends of mine, and unfortunately, they both have passed away. But <clears throat> um, they talked uh, to Ralph Nelson about hiring me as a as a supervisor. Um, they talked to Sandy Alderson about it. Um, I talked to Ralph. Um, talked to Sandy. I talked to Sandy about most of the, most of the things we talked. Sandy and I talked about <clears throat> were about the situation. How I would handle myself with the guys. Um, uh, I I explained to him. I said, "Listen, as far as I'm concerned, this thing's over. You know, I lost my job. It's over. I'm ready to move on. Um, it is what it is, and I'll I'll conduct myself like I always have. You're not gonna have you're not gonna have an issue with me. And they never did. As a matter of fact, I've had two or three guys come up to me uh, after I was there a couple years, and they admitted to me that they thought I was that I was going to come back and I was going to do this, I was going to do that. And they said, you've never done it. You treated us all with respect, and I appreciate that. And I said, oh, thank you, you know. And and that that was the conversation with with uh, <clears throat> Sandy and I. As far as Ralph and, and, and Steve and uh, Frank, um, they knew, they, they, they always knew how I umpired. They knew I was a teacher at heart. I like to teach. I still teach. I still do it, even though I don't get paid for it. 
<clears throat> but I, I'm a teacher at heart. I like I like to work with umpires. I like working with young umpires. I always appreciate what the older guys did for me as a young umpire. They helped me. Uh, Bill Haller and Nestor Shylock. Uh, those guys had tons and tons and tons of information for me. And they gave it to me. Any Anything I wanted, they would give to me. And if you listen, you got it. And I, I, I've always, I always said I was going to do the same thing for the young umpires. <clears throat> and I, I, you know, I've been an advocate of, of minor league umpires all my life, from day one. I still am. And, and, and I hear and, some rumors that you show up at some of these minor league games and, and check in on the umpires every now and again. Yeah, I do. And I tell them what I think too. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like something. I tell them. I know it might be out of place, but I do it. But they, they, they all accept it. You know, they accept it. I, I wanted to oh, touch on one of the supervisors you worked with who, who passed earlier in the year, Jim McKean. Uh, I know you had a chance to uh, work alongside him as a supervisor and also on the field with him on occasion. Um, can, you, can you sum up your thoughts on, uh, on Jim as a human and, and, and as an umpire? You know, it's very, very sad um, that this happened at, you know, at the age of 72. Um, uh, I went to umpire school with Jim. Uh, Jim was the number one student at the school uh, when we went to school together and uh, worked at the Florida State League together, worked in the Instructional League. Um, and, uh, you know, Jim happened to live here in St. Petersburg. I live here. I live in Clearwater. <laughs> so we were always, you know, always in contact uh, one way or the other and, uh, during the season. I worked, I worked some postseason with him. I don't, I, not many, but I think maybe one or two. Um I think 90, uh, what was that, 90? I've got it here somewhere. I'll find it. Yeah, but, but anyway, <clears throat> the last one, I believe the last one was in the 90s. Uh, it was uh, Yankees in uh, Seattle. I uh, remember that. Um, anyway, but, you know, it was sad. I, you know, I went to the viewing. I went to the funeral. I went to saw the kids. I've known the kids since they were just little, little kids. And uh, Jim lost his wife. I want to say maybe eight, eight, nine years ago. Um, she was great. She was a wonderful, wonderful woman, a uh, good mother, and good wife. And um, Jim, Jim was always, Jim was always a lot of fun. You know, he always had good stories and made you laugh. And yeah, I, I think I, if you would have been at the funeral, you would have seen the, I went to the viewing and uh, there was a friend of mine that was working there at the funeral home and told me that's that was one of the biggest um funerals that he's ever ever seen over there in a long long time he told me um i was there for a couple hours and there was a line there was a line there till i left <clears throat> there was a lot of people we had a lot of friends um one guy that came in particular who was a good friend of jim was scotty bowman the hockey coach wow. um that was good friends with jim yeah he was there um a lot of people from Major League Baseball, a lot of people from Minor League Baseball, um, and a, a lot of his friends, a lot, a lot of his friends that I, that I didn't even know. Um, I did see some guys that there that I hadn't seen in a while that were, they were mutual friends of ours. They showed up. Um, it was nice, and, um, you know, Jim was a good umpire. Um, you know, he, uh, <clears throat> he, ran, he ran his game the way he ran his game, and, you know, like I said earlier, you know, sometimes you really think that 
the way you run your game is the only way to do it. But there's other ways of doing it, and he was very successful in doing it the way that he did it. And, he, and you know, he had a lot of friends, and he had a lot of friends in baseball. I mean, the, and obviously he he was one of the guys that, you know, would listen to the managers, and he got along with the managers. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't always, he wasn't one of those guys that was always in a, <clears throat> an argument and looking for an argument, and uh, he was well-respected well for the way he did it. So um, it was a sad, sad day to see his kids. It's, you know, it's, they've lost his dad, and now they lost they lost a mom, and they lost his dad. And, uh, I like both kids. Both kids are great, great, great human beings. Um, his oldest son, Jamie's a lawyer. And, um, his youngest son, Brett, um, uh, was a uh, resident agent over here at uh, TROP um, during the season. He was a policeman. I understand now he's, you're going to FBI school, so <clears throat> they're 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 going a different different direction from their dad as far as uh, being an umpire for sure. And that so. mem- memory right on the money. You had uh, Yankees Seattle the first two games with Mike Riley, Scotty, uh, Larry McCoy, and uh, Jim Joyce. And uh, Jim was with you for that series. And then, of course, that series went five, but you weren't there to watch the end of it because you had the sweep between Cleveland and Boston. And so Correct. That, that, it all pays the same. Not, not a bad trade they, they, they used to – yeah, they, I remember there was nobody in Boston for that game. <clears throat> the Boston series was, was a dead series, uh, actually. Um, but we have, back then, we used to switch. Uh, they We'd work the first two games – and one series, and then worked the other three games from the other series. So sometimes you got lucky and you went to a better series. Sometimes you got unlucky and went to <laughs> a good one. You went right into jackpot <laughs> like those guys did. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, yes, we're going to talk about the play you all want to know about, and we're going to talk about a lot, of, a lot more with uh, our guest on the plate meeting, Rich Garcia. That's when we come back right after this. Hi, this is Jack Furlong, founder, president, and CEO of the OSIP Foundation Incorporated, where OSIP stands for Outstanding Sportsmanship is Paramount, a 501c3 organization dedicated to promoting good sportsmanship throughout all capacities of sports and competition. Please be sure to check out our website at osipfoundation.org to learn about us and some of our programs, such as our blog, The Strike Zone, our podcast, How You Play the Game, our awards programs for student-athletes, and Officials Anonymous, our hotline for sports officials who deal with abuse, anxiety, and other similar issues. Once again, that's OSIP Foundation. We welcome you back to the plate meeting. I'm Tim alongside Gil, our guest this week, Rich Garcia. So there have been 23 perfect games in Major League Baseball history on May 15th, 1981, in front of a raucous 7,290 in Cleveland's Cleveland Stadium. Rich Garcia, you worked the plate for Len Barker's perfect game. It hadn't happened in 13 years in Major League Baseball. What is that experience like of calling a perfect game? It was awesome. It was great. It was great to see uh, a pitcher have such control of of all his pitches and dominate dominate a game. I remember it was cold. It was cold that night. Um, And... Uh, he, they they were uh, they were playing the Blue Jays, um, and it was it's a little nerve wracking for an umpire <clears throat> to get to that that eighth inning 
you know, you got a no-hitter going eighth inning, then you get to the ninth inning, then you get to two outs, and it, and then it's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to be the guy to ruin this. Let somebody else, let somebody else ruin this. <laughs> and you're hoping, you're hoping they're up there swinging, <clears throat> and uh, and they were, they were. Um, Len Barker had everything going that night. Uh, his curveball and his fastball and his, um, of course, his control was impeccable. And uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was fun doing it. I, I, I didn't want to do it again, but it was fun doing it. So in 1990, and I don't know if there were more years, but it's the only year that I have the video, uh, CBS hired you as a rules analyst to work, uh, in this case, it was the Twins Brave Series, if I recall. Um, right. And you were on camera doing your thing. Did Major League Baseball give you this position? Was it CBS? And how uncomfortable was it? This is the year of the Herbeck uh, Gantt play at first base. You know, very. How hard is it to criticize somebody that you might be working with next year? Well, it's very difficult to criticize. And if you if you hear what I said on there, and uh, I didn't criticize him at all. I thought he got the play right, okay. um, and which was against. Uh, what Mr. McCarver thought, <clears throat> but uh, no, I uh, they uh, CBS called and asked me if I would do it. Of course, I went to the league and they uh, I said that you have to get permission from the league. And they said no, they're good with it. They said you could do it, so I called and yes, they were good with it. And um, I got paid by CBS. I didn't get paid by uh, <clears throat> Major League Baseball. And um, the 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 deal was I was supposed to be sitting up there to see if there was any rule violations. If they, if they had, a, they had a question about rules, I would be involved. Um, nothing about plays or judgment and none of that. Cause I said, I would, do, I would not do that. I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> um, so I remember, first of all, to start off with Tim McConnell was not, not our best friend. I'll say <laughs> any to any of the umpires. Okay, so that wasn't good. Um, I love Jack Buck. Jack Buck was always fair and nice man. He'd come into the locker room, say hello. And even though I didn't really have a lot of dealings with him, he was more with the, the National League guys. But all the National League guys loved him. <clears throat> I thought he was a great guy, and I I I learned to like him, and uh, I thought he was a very 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 fair person on on the air as opposed to his partner. <clears throat> so when that play happened, um, I was, I was sitting there, I was sitting on a stool and I'm watching. And when that play happened, this guy comes running up to me and he throws these, um, earphones on me. <laughs> he says, you're, you're going to be on. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Just, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> so anyway, so they start talking about the play and, 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 and Carver of course is, Wailing away, criticizing. So they bring me on, and I and I said, said according to the rule, according to the rule, if the if the runner does not have complete control of the base, he can be put out. If he steps off, or he jumps up, or if he's not completely, completely in control of his body on the base, <clears throat> and, and to me that's what happened. He tagged him. He he did he tag him hard? Absolutely. 
was he was he in complete control of his of his body on the on the base? No, he was trying to he was trying to stay on the base, and he was off off the base when Herbeck tagged him, and he and when he tagged him, he, he went off the base, but he's out. Well, and that's the way, and that's that's the way the rule reads. You obviously loved being on camera because then you became a major motion picture star. In uh, 1999, uh, the movie comes out for the love of the game. It's a box office flop, not because you were in it, because the script was bad and Kevin Costner can't couldn't act at this time. Uh, alongside Rick Reed and Jerry Crawford, how did you get offered the part uh, to work as an umpire in this movie? And uh, was it as fun as uh, everybody says it is to work in uh, Hollywood? Oh, it was fun. Well, we didn't go to Hollywood. We spent we spent 31 days in New York at the Waldorf, um, and then when we got to the stadium, we were in our own locker room, <clears throat> which was the umpire's locker room in Yankee Stadium. Um, it was fun. Um, I had just finished. I well, let me start. Let me start how how the umpires got involved in this. Is um, Kevin Cosner went to Cal State Fullerton. Augie Garrido went to Cal State Fullerton coaching out there as Cal State Fullerton, and they were friends. Both Kevin Costner and Augie Garrido were friends with a guy, his, his name escapes me right now, that was friends with the umpires. He was a general manager at some of the hotels uh, that we stayed at during the season. And he became, this guy became friends with Rick Reed, very good friends with Rick Reed. And um, <clears throat> they were out to dinner one night, and this guy asked Kevin Costner about the movie and asked him, do you want, do you want real umpires? Because Kevin always likes to, he always likes to have, to make it as real as he can. You know, it's a real, he wants to make it real. He's a great athlete. <clears throat> so he said, yeah, if you can get, get me major league umpires, you know, I'd love that. Well, he called Rick Reed and Rick Reed called, I'm not sure if he called Larry Young first or did I call you? Anyway, they called my, they called me. I just finished working the world series, 98. I just finished flying from Tampa to New York, New York, San Diego, San Diego back home. I was tired, long season, a lot of pressure. Um, Rick asked me if I wanted to be in the movie, and I said no. And my wife was listening in the back, and she said, who is that? And I said, it's Rick. What do you want? He wants to be in, be in the movie. I said no. She said, what? Let me talk to him. <laughs> so she, <laughs> Rick told her what was going on, and she said, we're going you're going to be in the movie. <laughs> so that's how it happened. <clears throat> I called Larry Young to see if he would be in it, but they needed somebody that could be away for 31 days. And Larry still had his kids at home. So he couldn't. And I, I knew Jerry Crawford um, would be available because he just worked the series with me. He had an empty nest like we did. Mm. So um, Jerry uh, came on with us and then we had a, supposedly an amateur acting umpire at third. So, but we had a lot of fun and it was great. Kevin Costner was, couldn't have been nicer. He couldn't have been more gracious than he was. Um, uh, all the people there were 
Uh, all great. Uh, had a lot of fun, and the only guy that was grumpy was uh, John C. Riley. The only guy that was a grump, but everybody else was. Everybody else was. Everybody else was great. Great. And, and I, 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 I enjoyed it. I'm glad. I, I'm glad I'm doing it. <clears throat> and it, you know what? It might have been a box office flop, but I just got. A, I just got a check for seventy dollars for that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm still getting checks and it's been it's been what twenty years twenty, 20 years. years that's right twenty years today twenty years at this time <clears throat> and I'm I still get royalty checks somebody's watching this movie somewhere then right yes absolutely <laughs> as long as we got major league the major league baseball channel <laughs> that, that's oh. they show it. <laughs> they show it there. They keep showing it, and you know what? It's still, it's 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 very 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 little right now. The amount of money we're getting, but um, we're still getting checks, still getting money for it. So, but I can't complain about it. <clears throat> uh, plus, uh, plus the experience, plus the experience. The experience was awesome. Experience was great. I wanted to talk to you for a second about the, the 90 ALCS, because this was supposed to be a mega matchup between Boston and Oakland. You were the crew chief for this series. You had game one behind the plate. Uh, Dave Stewart against Roger Clemens, who at the time, uh, hard to argue that they, they were the two best pitchers in baseball. What's your mindset going into a game like that as a, a working the plate? Oh, I, 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 I liked it. I liked the matchup. I liked the fact we got the best I You know, I happened to get the best two pitchers. Um, I'd had that matchup before, um, and both these guys, you know, both these guys, I, uh, were right there, right on their prime. I think they were, you know, throwing the ball very, very well. Um, <clears throat> something, uh, at that time there was a little, some turmoil going on with Roger. I don't know what it was. I can't tell you what it was cause I didn't know. I know there was some suspicion. His arm was hurting and he's supposed to be a free agent. And there was a, there's a lot of a lot of friction uh, uh, coming back to us um, from the Red Sox at the time. <laughs> Something was going on, but whatever. Um, uh, you know, working. You know, I was I, I worked game one, um, and I think uh, I think Jim Evans was supposed to work. Uh, I think he was supposed to work game five. I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't I don't remember what the rotation was at the time. Uh, I know I wasn't the senior guy uh, on the crew, and I questioned Marty when uh, Marty Springstead when he told me I was going to be the crew chief, and I said, "No, I'm not the senior guy on this group." And he said, "Well, don't worry about it. You're you're in charge." So um, I took it from there. And, um, <clears throat> and in Game Four of this series was what I thought was a really good ejection from uh, from Terry Cooney when it appeared that Roger Clemens just didn't want to pitch anymore. And right. And that's, and that's, that's exactly, that's exactly what I, what I've, I've told everybody. He didn't want to pitch that day. He couldn't pitch that day. He just couldn't, his arm, his arm was gone. They were hitting him like batting practice. And he, he, they, he just didn't want to pitch. And he, he said something that he should have never said. And Terry Cooney was not the kind of umpire that, looking for trouble, never looked for trouble. Um, you know, he wasn't looking for an ejection. Obviously, in that situation, you, you don't, that's the worst thing you want. You don't want to, you know, you don't want an ejection. 
Now, this is bizarre, Rich, because we get we get a situation like when Clemens threw the bat at Piazza, he acted like nothing happened. And in this spot, he goes back to the mound like he wasn't ejected. And you can see he's looking at Cooney when he's ejected. Was there is there a mental disconnect with Roger? Did he think he was going to keep pitching? What was your interaction with Clemens to get him off the field? Well, he 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 was very um, like he was out of it. He didn't he, he wasn't a regular Roger. He was he was out of it. I've been in situations with him where he had a, I remember when he had a streak going. I think he had a, a no run scored against him streak. I don't remember how what the streak was. Eighteen innings, nineteen innings, twenty innings, whatever it was, and he was pitching in Chicago. I believe it was the White Sox and. He was covering first base on the play, and the umpire called it, called the guy safe, and the run scored and broke his streak. And he just went, he just went bananas. But after, you know, after after talking to him, he calmed, he calmed down. This this day, he wasn't, he just wasn't himself. I had heard that he had put some um, uh, war paint on his face. He was all getting in the locker room. He was going. He was just doing things that weren't normal. I, I don't really know. I can't tell you. <clears throat> it just wasn't a normal. It wasn't a normal situation. It wasn't normal for him to say something like that, and it wasn't normal for the umpire to throw him out of the game like that. And uh, we could have had. We probably could have had six or seven more ejections uh, at that time during that during that uh, situation. Yogi Berrow once said the easiest way to uh, catch a knuckleball was to pick it up after it stopped. Now, I've had umpires tell me that you were one of the best uh, knuckleball callers uh, of balls and strikes out there. And we're talking about in the 70s and 80s, there were, what, six, seven knuckleballers in the American League. This uh, could have drove you insane if you didn't have it. What was your secret to calling a knuckleball? Well, you call when you start out, you start calling strikes. <laughs> you should call strikes and and have the guys shake their head a couple times in the beginning, and then think, you know what? I better swing because uh, I, I gotta I, I gotta get it I gotta get it before it starts moving, or this guy's gonna call it a strike. So it's and believe it or not, it's not an easy thing to do, especially when a guy is not throwing strikes with the knuckleball, and the guys aren't swinging at it, because what what happens is the view that you're getting from the from the dugout. Um, you're getting two different views. You're getting a view with one catcher, and then you're getting a view with the with with the regular catcher. And they don't they're not going to catch the ball the same way all the time. And you know we hang our hats on how the catcher catches the ball, and uh, that that makes it very difficult because at some point, you know we're going to call we're going to go with a knuckleball pitcher. You're going to call one that's either a little bit too high or a little bit too low. Get about outside, inside, outside, but either high or low, you're going to get it. So you you hope that when the guy starts out that he's throwing strikes and you can call strikes, and you know, yeah, you know, try to hit it, just hit it. You know, put, the ball, put the ball in, put the ball in play. That's what I, you want. I mentioned Terry Cooney earlier. This is for my edification because in 1986 you worked the plate in Game Six of the championship series between. Boston, one of the greatest ALCSs of all time. Nobody ever talks yeah. about it because the NLCS was so amazing and the World Series was so amazing. But that 86 ALCS, Boston down 3-1, the crazy home run by uh, Steve Hent- with uh, Dave Henderson. Henderson. Dave yeah. Henderson. Yeah. Terry Cooney um, did not work game seven. But, and I could never 
figure out why he didn't work. He, he worked five umpire crew for game seven, if I recall. And you went to second base. <laughs> yeah. What well, happened? I worked, like you said, I, I worked game six. Um, and it was, it, was, it was miserable flying back from Los Angeles all the way back to Boston because we thought it was over. Um, you know, we had, we had the police. The police was on the field um, with, the, uh, with the horses and the whole thing, ready, ready, ready to lock this thing up. <clears throat> and uh, all of a sudden, the Red Sox ended up winning the game. And we got, a, we got a day off. It took us all day to get from L.A. to Boston. You got there at night. It was cold, cold, cold. When we got there, and then we got the game the next day, <clears throat> the next night. Um, I, I worked game six, and again, it was, it was cold at night. Um, you know, I'm from Key West. I don't like, I don't like being in the cold. It was was cold that night. So the next night, which is still freezing, I put everything I had in my, in my bags on. It was cold. I put every shirt I had. I'm going to right field. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that I could get in trouble in right field until a few years later. But, um, I, 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 you know, so we're we're at the home plate meeting, and we're getting ready to break from from the plate, and Cooney falls down, and he, um, his his thighs, I mean his calf, he blew a calf right at home plate. And so on his run to the outfield, as he's as he's leaving home plate, he hadn't even got to anywhere. It wow. happened right between. It happened right between first and second. I mean, uh, uh, home plate and first base. He just fell. And <clears throat> so the trainer for the Red Sox comes out, and he's looking at him, and he says, well, he can't work. I said, yeah, he can. He can work. He's okay. Nothing wrong with him. Let's go. Rub some dirt on it. The guy says, no, he can't work. He, he just blew calf. So, of course, I'm, Marty, Marty's waving at me, and I know what he's going to say. I know, I know I'm going to second. So now I got I go to second and I got all these clothes on. I feel like the Hulk. I got so much <laughs> stuff on. My coat is getting ready to bust. The, the the button on my coat is getting ready to bust. So between then, I had to go in and take some stuff off. I mean, which made me cold, but I had to, I had to be able to move. I, I couldn't move with all that all that clothes on. <clears throat> so um, that's why he didn't. That's why he didn't work that that game. So since you mentioned right field umpire, any memorable experiences uh, working the right well, just field? A little, just a little one. <laughs> just a little 12-year-old kid. <laughs> so there's like 15 different ways to ask this question. I know you're cool with it because uh, the next day uh, we talked about how you're a man of integrity in the open. You said to the people that you made a mistake. Um, if you could do it over again, how would you have officiated that play? Because one of the things you were great and everybody talks about is Richie Garcia. He's always in position. He he could look like he's going to, and boom, he's there. He's on top of it. He makes the call. And, you know, if you could do it over again in your own mind, how would this play go? You mean after I've seen it and all that? Well, no, I, mean, I just, would you have been further no, away? I would, I, no, I wouldn't do anything different. I thought I, I thought here, here's the here's the problem. The problem was that I was told before the game that there would not be anybody standing back there. 
because we know from past experiences that people standing out there by right field, the right field fence, um, they're always they're always hanging over. We've had those plays, you know, we had those plays all the time out there. We always had them in left field and in right field. <clears throat> we had those kind of plays. I mean, they weren't in the playoffs, maybe in the playoffs of World Series, but we we had those plays quite a bit. So at the meeting inside inside the meeting, I asked the security guy, "What are you, what are you going to do about the people hanging over the fence out in the right field?" And he said, "You don't have to worry about it." Sonny Sonny Height was the uh, security guy still there with the Yankees, and he said, uh, "Don't worry about it. We got we got people at every corner, and we got chains. We're not going to let the people be walking." But when the ball's in play, there's not going to be anybody back there. Everybody's got to be in their seat, or they're going to have to wait like they do in hockey. Once the play starts, you got to wait to get to your seat. So I kept looking out there. I kept looking, and everything was cool. There was nothing, nothing, nothing. So when that when that ball when that ball was hit, and you know, I looked, I I picked up I picked up the ball. I knew where the ball was, and I picked up the fielder like I did, and I thought I, I I was right up against right up against the fence. I could, you know, all of a sudden the ball's gone. He jumps up, the ball's gone. Well, really, I shouldn't say he jumped up because he really didn't jump. He, he his, you look at the replay, his feet are on the on the ground. He never jumped, <clears throat> and the ball's gone. And I called it, you know, I called it home run. There's not supposed to be anybody back there. You know, I didn't stand there and look and see if there was somebody back there. You know, you make the call. And and uh, so, of course, I get in an argument. We're arguing. Um, Tarasco is arguing. Brady Brady came over. Uh, he said a couple things. Brady was really good. Um, then uh, Davey Johnson came. Uh, Benitez, Benitez came all the way from the mound out there. When he, lucky he didn't get thrown out because <clears throat> um, I was too busy with too many people there. Um, anyway, when when I started walking, when I started walking towards home plate, I was going to ask. Well, stop and think now. Back then, we didn't we didn't ask. We didn't have two consultations. We didn't. We called something. You, you made it. That was your call. <clears throat> You're done. Um, but I thought, you know what? Um, this is something that it looks like, you know, it might be, I might have not got this right, so let me go ask. So I so started walking. Brady came by me, and he, and he said, Richie, somebody interfered with that ball. And when he said that to me, the way he said it, I believed him. I really did. And I went to... I went to Dale. Dale. Dale was at first base. Uh, Dale said he he couldn't see anything. He was watching the runners. I went to Mike Riley. He was at second. He didn't. He said he didn't know. Couldn't see anything. I went to Larry Barnett. who was working the plate, and he said he couldn't tell. So, okay. Now was Any Rocky Rowe or or uh, was was Rocky Jim Morrison Rocky. on the right field uh, on the left field line? I think Morris. I think Morrison were game one. No, 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 no. Rocky had to be. See what game did Rocky work? Uh, uh, Rocky worked the last game in Baltimore. He worked game five in Baltimore. So he had to be in. Let me see here. Left field. He had to be in left field, right? 
be third. Let's see. Game one would be Rocky Rowe was in left field. You were in right field. Yeah. 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 It had to be because I was. I I would have had game six. Yeah. <clears throat> I would have had. I would have had game six behind the plate. Um. So anyway, so I kind of had an idea that something was wrong, but hey, what am I going to do? I can't just change it because they're arguing. So. When the game was over, I went in locker room and everybody, all the brass was in there with their heads down. <laughs> so I walked in, I went to Marty, I said, did somebody interfere with that ball? And he said, yes. And he said, you're going to have to go in for a press conference. I said, a what? He said, a press conference. So I said, well, let me look at, let me look at the plate. Let me look at it on TV. So I, you know, I looked at it and sure enough, the kid, reached over. So now on my way over to the press conference, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to say. I have no idea what I'm going to say. Somehow I'm going to say I didn't, that I missed it, but uh, I I don't know how I'm going to say this. I don't know how it's never been done before. I've never done this. This is new. And and they didn't have Barry Barnetko with you, who was the crew chief for this series. Oh, no, I went went with, the only one that went with me was Phyllis Barge. Phyllis uh, was PR director. Uh, and I, 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 Marty, Marty might have been behind me. Marty might have been behind me. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I, Marty might have been behind me. Um, so, you know, I got up there and she told me, she says, look, I'll, I'll try to make it as, uh, painless as possible. I'll try to get you out of here as soon as I can. So I said, good, thank you. And I got up there and the first thing I said that came out of my mouth and I don't know how, I don't know why was, um, I guess I'm the only umpire that can get in trouble working right field, and they all started laughing. They thought it, they thought that was funny, so that broke the ice for me, made made me a little bit more comfortable. <clears throat> and the questions that they asked me were very very professional questions, very respectful, um, and the the whole press conference I thought went well, um, you know. Uh, sometimes being an umpire, uh, you know, you don't get you don't get a lot of pat in the back except from except from your partners, from your people. Nobody outside the game, um, you know, says, "Hey, great job! Hey, good job!" Only I mean, unless unless they win, if they win, they tell you they did a good job. But you know, you want to hear from the losers. You don't want to hear from the winners, and. Out of that, out of that whole press conference, out of the things that were written, out of the things that were being said, there was a lot of positive, positive things said about me in my career, um, which really helped me. Uh, it was a very, very difficult winter, the most difficult winter that I've ever had in my life. Um, you know, going going through the process, knowing that there's not a game tomorrow that I could, you know, somehow. Um, physically um, and mentally redeem myself, get back in the groove. I had to live with this for the, those winter months, <clears throat> thinking about it and, you know, talking about it. Um, and it was very difficult. It's, uh, it was it was a, a, just a terrible, terrible winter for me. <clears throat> and I just couldn't, I couldn't wait to get on the field um, with the Orioles, you know, again. I couldn't, I just couldn't wait. Um, to, you know, find out what's what's going on, you know, 
I, you know, when, when I, when I ejected a guy in a game, when I ejected a guy out of the game the next day, I'd look for him. I'd look for him and look, look him right in the eye, find out what kind of guy you're going to be. What are you going to, what are we, what are we going to do? <clears throat> you want to keep fighting? You're not going to win. <clears throat> or you, or you want to, you want to talk like a man. You want to get this, this problem, whatever it was, get it over, just get it over with. And there was guys for it. And I handled, you know, I ha- I wanted to handle this the same way. You know, I wanted to look Kyle Ripken in the eye. I wanted to look Brady Anderson in the eye. And <clears throat> out of that, out of that whole situation, uh, I remember. I remember the day I went to Sarasota. I worked my first game with the Orioles. I was working the bases, and when the Orioles ran out on the field, Brady came by and said, "Hey, Richie, how you doing? How's your winter?" I said, "Awful, terrible," and he stopped. And he, what happened? He said, what happened? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what you're talking about. I said, well, I had that, you know, I had that place. He put his arm around me and he said, Richie, don't even worry about that. That play didn't, that play didn't beat us. They had a better team than we did. He said, you, you work very hard on the field out here. You're always hustling. You're always working hard. Just don't, don't even think about it. We forgot about it, so you better forget about it. And and Ripken came by and you know he was fine. He didn't say anything. And the only guy, the only guy that's ever kept the grudge has been Davey Johnson, the only guy. <clears throat> Finally, one day I had to tell him, "Listen, I'm tired. I'm tired of listening to this. Next time you mention it at home plate, I'm gonna run you right there. So just you know what, forget about it. I'm tired of listening to your shit." Did you ever so, get a chance to meet Jeffrey Mayer? Never have. You believe that? Never. It's funny never. because one one of our somebody asked this question, uh, texted me this question. It's like, you know, a lot of people that are connected to history, whether it's Al Dowling and Hank Aaron, or you know, uh, who was the the guy that Vic Wirtz and uh, I'm forgetting the guy who hit the home run, uh, but you know, Bill Buckner, Mookie Wilson, they they do they meet at some point. And it's a cool deal. And the media is there, and you know, but. It would be to me. It would be interesting, fascinating if you met him. I guess he's in his thirties now. Oh, at least, yeah. Well, don't you know? One time, um, uh, the writer from Boston, David, I think his name is David Buckley. Um, they were going to have some kind of some kind of banquet or something, and he asked me if I would come, and I said, "Yeah, I would." And then something fizzled out, and it didn't work out. It didn't. It didn't work out. <laughs> he was going to be there for that too. They were, you know, um, but I've never, I've never ever met, I've never met the guy. Never, never, I've never had. David Buckley is the only guy that's ever said to me, you know, would you mind um, doing this with him? And I said, no, wouldn't mind at all. Hey, listen, if I was, if I was twelve years old, I had a glove in my hand, in Yankee Stadium, I'd do the same thing. I'd try to catch the ball. Exactly. So, it's what kids do. Is that why I don't, we used to I don't, play games? I, I don't have. I don't have any. I, I never did have any any bad feelings about the kid. I mean, it just it's just something that happens in baseball. That's what this game's about. You know, I, I didn't like it. It happened to me, but you know, that's that's what this game's about. This game is this is a humbling game, very very humbling game, and uh, that's why you, that's why you have to work hard every day at it. It's not easy. It's not an easy game. It's not an easy game as a player. It's not an easy game. As an umpire, 
It's just a difficult game. You got to stay on top of your game. Because if you work, if you work enough big games, you work enough big games, something's gonna happen. Something's gotta happen. Well, we're gonna take our final break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some tragedy in Texas and uh, a certain uh, son-in-law that is working in the big leagues of our guest on this edition of the Plate Meeting. And that's when we come back right here at Close Call Sports. Stay with us, everybody. You can visit us online at closecallsports.com. Find us on social. At Umpire Ejections is the username on Twitter and Facebook. And while you're on Facebook or Twitter, encourage your friends, your umpire buddies, family, coworkers to to like us. Um, Because if we're not liked, then uh, we'd be umpires. We welcome you back to the plate meeting. Our guest in this edition, 25-year Major League Baseball veteran, Rich Garcia. We're going to take some of your questions coming up. But first, uh, a couple of things that uh, we wanted to to get to. On uh, July 7th, 1991, you were out to dinner with Steve Palermo. Uh, You and uh, some friends and Steve and uh, Fateful Night where he was uh, shot in the parking lot. This is just an insane story. And uh, you were there um, for one of, the, one of your good friends, one of the all-time good guys. What, what happened on that night? Can you just take us through it? Uh, well, it was really a devastating night. Uh, more, more devastating was the next day when we, we got the news that uh, he would probably never walk again. Um, it was very, very difficult for me. Steve and I grew up in this game together. I was, I was this instructor at umpire school, and we were friends. And uh, <clears throat> I want to feel like um, I had a lot to do with him coming to the American League instead of him going to the National League. Um, uh, when he was a young umpire, and he's super, super talented. Just. Uh, the, the ability, the ability to know what was going to happen, to anticipate, ability to be at the right place at the right time, and uh, the judgment, the judgment that he had behind the plate. Uh, I mean, it was just, uh, just an unbelievable talent. Um, those kind of guys don't, you know, don't come around that often. And <clears throat> I was very, very fortunate to be friends with him and. Uh, work with him and <clears throat> fight with him and everything else. So, uh, we had a great friendship um, for a long, long time. And it's a little sad talking about it. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, well, we worked the game. Him and I were staying at the Hyatt in uh, downtown Dallas. The other guys were staying in Arlington. And uh, after the game, uh, we always went over to this Italian restaurant, Campisi's. Um, Mr. Campisi was a good, good friend of ours. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so we always went there after the game. We had pizza, whatever. Um, and that particular night, we did the same thing. And uh, we're sitting there, we're eating and, you know, having having a good time. And um, actually, I was, I was a little sick myself that night. I, I wasn't feeling good. I had... I had some kind of virus. I don't, it's a, it, it was kind of like, um, I felt like I was paralyzed. My feet, my legs, 
something something was going on. Um, matter of fact, I had I had promised my wife that I was gonna that I, that I would go with her to um, uh, to Maine <clears throat> during the break, the All Star break, and I had to call her and tell her I couldn't go. I wasn't gonna be able to go because I, w- I wasn't feeling good. And my my legs were bothering me. I was gonna have I had to go to the doctor. I was going to have to go to the doctor. And again, back then, you know, you had to come home and go to the doctor. You didn't have people there waiting for you if you got sick or you got hurt here today. Like they have, they have immediate uh, attention <clears throat> on the field and off the field. So I told Steve, I said, you know, I'm going home. I uh, I don't I don't feel good. <clears throat> you want me to take a cab? Or and you take the car, or do you want me to take the car and you'll you'll get a ride home with one of these guys? And he said, No, I'll get a ride home with one of these guys. And <clears throat> shortly after I left, uh, I understand one of the girls. There was the the waitresses were leaving to go home, and they were going to their car. And there was some customers coming in, and when they opened the door, the bartender saw one of the girls getting punched right in the face. Well, he yelled out, hey, one of the girls are getting mugged. So all the guys ran out there. <clears throat> and two guys ran one way, and one guy ran the left to the left. And the group from the restaurant chased the guy to the left. The guy was by himself. And they grabbed him, and they got him. They finally got him. And they had him on the ground. And uh, obviously, the other two guys went to a car and came back looking for their friend. And when they saw they had him in the ground, the guy came out with a gun and started shooting. And <clears throat> they hit a guy by the name of Terrence Mann, who was a ex-football player. They hit him three times, and they hit Steve once in the back, on the side of the back. And, and it it uh, fractured one of his... Um, I guess it, it's called a horse tail that you have in the back, and the little, the little edge, like a like your little finger, it just clicked that, and he went down. Well, I was I was in bed, and the owner of the restaurant called me and said, "Hey, wake up! You got to go over to Parkland Hospital. Steve got shot." And he had to tell me like three times before I, you know, he was screaming at me, you know. Get your butt to the hospital. Get your butt to the hospital right now. So I, <clears throat> uh, I took a cab to the hospital around two o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning, and he was in, you know, he was in there in the emergency room, and and his leg, he said his leg was hurting. So I rubbed, I was rubbing his leg, rubbing his leg, rubbing his leg, and couldn't feel it. But he said it's hurting, but I, I don't feel your hands on it. It wasn't good. It wasn't a good. wasn't a good feeling. He was in pain. He was in a lot of pain, and they put that catheter on him, and he was like, just completely, completely going nuts. And well, I just, you know, spent the night there as long as I could. They took him in. Um, they took him in for surgery, and the next day, they, you know, they told us the doctor came. The doctor told me, he looked at me right in the eyes, said he'll never walk again. I said, oh, kidding me. And he said, sir, he's lucky he's alive. He said, another inch, he'd be dead. So that was the beginning of that that saga. And the next day, the next couple of days was just was just awful 
Um, you know, I do remember one of the highlights was President Bush came in and came into the, to the hospital to see Steve, and uh, you know, trying to make it as comfortable as he could, and you know, he he promised that he would work again. Not only not only am I going to walk again, but I'm going to go back on the field. I don't remember what day I flew home. I flew home. I stayed home for a day or two. I went back. I had a lot of I had a lot of guilt, survivor guilt. Uh, you know, I could retire. If he can't, you know, he's still got, you know, years to go before he can retire. And you just you just you just feel like, you know, if you would have been there, that wouldn't have happened. Who knows? Who knows? All I know is it was very very difficult for him the rest of his rest of his life, but. Uh, he made he made the best the best of it. He helped a lot of people. I made him happy. And you got to work with him as a as on the supervisory staff uh, later then, on. Yeah, then we worked we worked together as supervisor. He and, and he helped get me on the staff. And I you know I just I I just couldn't I I, I when he when he passed away I just couldn't believe he passed away. You know he had he had. He had a lot going for him. He's, everybody liked him. He's a likable guy, fun, laughing all the time. Uh, you know, it's just hard. Just a, In, just a sad, 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 sad. <clears throat> he never had never had an opportunity to have kids. He would have been probably would have been a great great father. And you know, it's just, uh, I guess. You know, sometimes you gotta have trust in God that God knows what He's doing, why He's doing things, and uh, just just sad. Let's get on to happier subjects. Uh, yeah. Vic Carapaza, um, was he an umpire when he uh, proposed to 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 your daughter? And did you ever think that uh, you know? I, I remember, uh, you know, some people saying, no, "I'll never let." You know, they're cops and they say, I would never let my daughter date a cop or they're, you know what I mean? Did you think, yeah. well, I'm an umpire. Am I going to let my daughter date an umpire? Um, in any well, regard, you must be pretty proud of this, uh, of, of this Vic guy. Uh, well, Vic, Vic's been around my house since he was 14 years old. So he, he just didn't show up one day. He's, he's been around, um, he showed up disguised as a friend, as a 14-year-old, and has been around ever since. So, um, you know, they they were they were they went together in high school, and you know, they had their ins and outs, they had their fights, and they <clears throat> actually they uh, when my daughter went to college uh, uh, in 80, uh, 80, 98. Um, he was he went into service. They had kind of broken up, and um, of course, when he gets he gets back in the states, he gets he gets stationed in in Georgia, which is right on the on the line of the the <clears throat> county line there in Florida. And she's at the University of Florida, so they kind of hooked up again. Um, and then they ended up getting married, and. Uh, he had he had asthma. Um, 
because when he went to Kuwait, he got some asthma, so he, they, he, didn't, he couldn't stay in the service. He wanted to stay, but he couldn't stay. <laughs> and one day, my daughter says, Vic uh, wants to be an umpire, wants to go to umpire school. And I said, good. Well, my wife had a fit. <laughs> my wife said, don't let him go. Do whatever you have to do, but don't let him go. This don't, is this, this is the same wife who acted as your agent to get you in the movie business, but uh, yeah. doesn't understand <laughs> as an umpire, but doesn't understand why anybody wants to be an umpire. <laughs> <laughs> well, she said, "Don't don't do this, don't do that." Anyways, um, start talking about it. I he started working, yeah, he started working high school games and. Uh, college games around here and I watched him I worked, took him to the field work with him a little bit <clears throat> um taught him what he what he was going to do at umpire school and um he wanted to go he he ended up going to Windlestad's umpire school and when he showed up there the guys a lot of the instructors called me up and said hey your son-in-law's here don't worry about it we'll take care of him and I said no I don't want you to take care of him he can't umpire, send his butt home so he can get a job and take care of my daughter. I don't want I don't want him to spend ten years in the minor leagues and, and not make it. If he can't umpire, send him home. Well, fortunately he <clears throat> he's very talented. Um he has great instinct. Uh I had the opportunity to work with him at the Fall League when I was out there. Um, and just to let people know, <clears throat> I never ever wrote a report on Vic ever. I let that I let that job somebody else on the on the staff to evaluate him. Um, I I could see what he could do. I I you know I knew I knew where he should be and where where he, you know where he should be on the list and things like that. <clears throat> but I never I never wrote a report on Vic. I, I worked hard with him. I worked hard with him, and I worked hard with all the with all the young guys that were out there with him. And they had a great group, a great group of of umpires. And uh, uh, like I said, he's he's extremely extremely talented. Um, he handles things a whole lot whole lot different than I do. Uh, his temperament is uh, almost perfect. When he gets in situations, he's had some very, very, very difficult situations, um, and and then big times in the playoffs, he's had them, and he's handled them, handled them very, very well. And uh, right now, he he's very well respected. I can see that he's very well respected. <clears throat> One of the reasons he's very well respected is because he works hard every day, and that's what you, that's what you need to do. That's to me, that's. Uh, Number one thing is to give it your all every day and try to learn as you go. And uh, he's done that. He takes, you know, takes advice very, very, very well. Um, yes, he, but but everything that he, everything that he's done, he's done himself. He's worked he's worked hard for it. Um, you know, when he first came. Uh, got to the minor leagues and stuff. Everybody was saying, "Oh, he's going to make it because he's your son-in-law and this and that." And the other, they're not saying it to me, but they're saying it. They're, you know, I've heard heard people doing it. And first thing people 
say today when, oh, did you help Vic get to the big leagues? I said, no, I didn't help Vic, Vic get to the big, big leagues. Vic got to the big leagues because he's a good umpire, like everybody else. You can't help people get to the big leagues. <clears throat> there's too much. There's too much talent out there to help somebody get to the big leagues. You can't do it. There's too many steps. There's too many people that have to okay that move. You can't just do it. It's not a political position. You just you gotta you gotta go out there and work for it. And he worked for it and he earned it. <clears throat> and everything he's got, everything he's done, he's earned it on his own. Nothing to do has nothing to do with me. And nothing. Let me, let me take a step back for a second because I went to umpire school with Vic, and uh, there wasn't a nicer guy. I mean, at umpire school than Vic Carapazza. And to all the people out there that give him a bad rap because they think it's nepotism in some way, you're full of nonsense, okay? He's a great human being and a great umpire. And champion that fact or couple that fact with the fact that he's been in the playoffs every year he's been eligible. All five years he's been eligible, all five postseasons. And uh, you could learn a lot from Vic Carapazza if you want to learn how to umpire. And that's every every once in a while Thank I you. go off on a rant, Richie. So excuse me. <laughs> that's all right. As long as it's a positive rant, that's good. Uh, well, yeah, we're full of positivity. Sometimes we get uh, we get fired up about announcers, but that's another story altogether. Um, yeah. Let's take some user questions, um, if you don't mind. And these are uh, sent in by our users, and uh, we appreciate uh, all the questions we get. And we're sorry we won't be able to get to all of them. Uh, Mark wanted to know. In terms of mechanics, I noticed how you uniquely leaned in as you tracked the ball into the catcher's glove. How did you develop that mechanic? Mega thanks to one of the all-time greats. Well, it takes a long time to do that. You have to you 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 have to follow the ball with your eyes. You can't follow the ball with your head. Um, you stop moving your head, um, you're going to get yourself in trouble, especially when you're inexperienced. Um, and like I said, it, it, it takes a lot, a lot of repetition to be able to stand back there and wait till that ball hits the glove to make a call and to get yourself in position to see the, to see the ball as far into the glove as you can. Uh, I, I always say that because some people say, follow the ball all the way into the glove. And yeah, you, in some cases you can do that, but in other cases you can't. <laughs> because of the the way the catcher catches the ball and and moves the ball or how big he is or you know how far outside he is or whatever or inside or whatever 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 the situation um you can't uh you you, you can't follow the ball all the, all the way into the glove all the time every once in a while you you'll be able to get <clears throat> and that's why that's why I feel that if you get in the slot you'll be able to see the see the ball. A lot of guys want to get behind the catcher. If you get behind the catcher, um, you're not going to see, you're not going to see half the pitches and you're going to get hit with a foul ball right in the mask. So stay out from behind the catcher. So uh, I I don't know what else I can, I can say about that, but I I can, the main thing I can tell you, it takes a lot of repetition. You've got to practice. You got to, you got to work games. You got to get back there and you got to, uh, evaluate yourself and watch your, watch yourself on tape as much as you can on video. If you watch yourself, you can you can make it make a, uh, adjustments. Mark, I hope we hope uh, that uh, 
that answers your question. Uh, Chuck123 wants to know, uh, you may know that your son-in-law has uh, had some run-ins with the Blue Jays, but more notably their fans. Um, have you ever had incidents with either Oriole or Padre fans? And uh, what has Vic told you if he's felt threatened by members of the fans of the Blue Jays? No, I've never, I've, I've never been threatened uh, by any Oriole fans. Of course, they don't. Uh, I wasn't very well liked going in there, of course, they don't, you know, that's their team. Um, but, but, you know, as far as the Blue Jays go, that's the generation. Blue Jays, now. Pardon me? It's a, different, it's a different era now. Those Toronto fans are crazy. Uh, well, the Toronto fans, the problem, the problem there was that somehow somebody, somebody put a telephone number um, on uh on one of his numbers at home, and I took a, I take offense to it because my my grandkids are there, and and that's really really a childish thing to do over a baseball game to get to get try to try to involve you know to scare kids. I remember when Don Denkinger had his play in in Kansas City. <clears throat> uh, I was working. I was working with him that year. I worked with him that year. I should say I wasn't in the World Series with him, but I worked with him that year. And I remember right after that play, his kids called my house, and they were crying, and they, they were they were they had somebody had just called, and they threatened them, and they're going to burn the house down. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And and I and they were worried about their dad. My dad. What's going to happen to my dad? I said, don't worry about your dad. Your dad's going to be fine. They'll have security there. They'll take him off the field, and, you know, he's going to be fine. Um, and and that's the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, uh, you know, when you have to call, when you have to call the sheriff's office and have to have a, a, a sheriff's car parked in front of your house over yeah. a baseball game, that's, you know, that's taking it, taking it a little bit too far. And and that's what happened here. We had to have that because somebody knew, somebody knew where he lived. Somebody knew what church he went to, and and the whole bit. And that's the sad part about it. But that stuff's over with. It does that. You know that thing's over. Those plays are over. Those things situations are over. <clears throat> Every umpire has a team that he has an issue with, and it's not not done on purpose. Just the way it is. You just have you have problems with a certain team, and and that's it's not it's not uh, uh, uncommon for an umpire to have a, a, a t- certain team that he just just can't get over the hump with. So, you know, just something that happens. But uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't we shouldn't go to that extreme. No, we don't. We don't game. over a baseball game that. Uh, <clears throat> You've got to be kidding me. Michael wants to know, when Dale Scott was on the podcast, he had mentioned how much of a mentor you were to him early in his career. How did you approach your role as a mentor when you were a crew chief? Were there any other umpires who worked with or influenced you uh, that you tried to emulate in that role? Nesta Shylock, no doubt. Nesta Shylock, to me, was the greatest umpire that ever walked on the field. You worked with him in 1978. I worked with him in 1977 and 78. Yep. And and 
Uh, I worked with Steve. Steve was on the crew in 77 with Nestor. <clears throat> and him and Nestor bumped heads. And uh, they were too much alike. And I loved I loved being... I love being around Nestor because all Nestor talked about was umpiring. Talked about it in the morning, the middle of the day, at night, uh, in the locker room, in the car, wherever he was, that's what he talked about. (laughs) He's always, always teaching, always teaching. And he would always, always, always tell you what you're doing wrong. And not only will he tell you what you're doing wrong, but he will tell you, what's going to happen if you do that? It's not going to, it might not happen today. It might not happen tomorrow, but it's going to happen. <clears throat> and that scared me when he said that, when he used to tell me that. And, and I was, you know, that's those, those things I will never forget at, up to this day. I still send his wife, a, I send his wife a Christmas card every year. And I talk about him every year. And I, I tell her, um, I keep telling them that Nestor's influence is still out there because a lot of the young guys that I taught, a lot of the guys that I mentored, continue to do the things that Nestor taught me, and I was able to give it back and hand it back to them, and and they they continue to do it. I see it. I see it on the field. So <laughs> I always let her know that Nestor's Nestor's influence is still out there on that baseball field. When we go through the year by year, there are a lot of guys you've worked with two or three years, but two names, well, three particularly, because, you know, with, with Steve Palermo, that stand out that you worked with for close to a decade. Uh, the first one we mentioned earlier, but can, can you give your thoughts on, on Rick Reed? Um, Rick, yeah, Rick worked with me quite a bit. Um, Rick, um, Rick was a, a good umpire, a strong umpire. Um, Rick uh, was a quiet guy. Um, You almost take you almost take Rick for granted. You know, he's like he's not around. You can't. He doesn't talk loud. He doesn't he doesn't get involved in arguments with you. He doesn't. You know, he's very quiet. And then when he has something to say, you know, it's it's probably a good time to listen because he's probably got something that's very valuable um, for you and. And your your the people that we're there with, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> I love I loved having Rick on the crew. He was always um, he was always there to do whatever you know whatever you asked him to do on the crew, and he always you know he worked the system very well. Um, and uh, you know I I really I really enjoy it. I I still enjoy his friendship today. So um, uh, <clears throat> he's in he's in Michigan and. Uh, I hope he's doing well. I haven't talked to him in a while. Uh, it's funny. There, there was a time where the two hotbeds of umpiring in Major League Baseball were uh, Kentucky and Michigan, where I believe it was close to 20 combined between the two states. Where, if you think umpiring, those are not the two states that you think of off the bat, um, no doubt. <laughs> I wanted to bring you to another guy that I, I think you worked with here I, – I, you know, from started in 1980, 1980 working with Mike Riley, and uh, your last year, he was he was your two guy. Um, a long relationship with Mike Riley, another Michigan guy. Um, yeah, Notre Dame. Your thoughts on yeah. uh, on the great yeah. Mike Riley? 
Yeah, we worked. You know, we worked together probably at least I gotta think ten years, at least eight years. But uh, yeah, Mike. Mike was on the crew quite a bit. You know, Mike and I hung out together. Um, we uh, Mike was Mike was a very good umpire. Um, you know, he uh, he he worked a little different behind the plate than your than your average guy, but um, he got it done. Um, he um, he's a, he was a good a good crew member. You know, we you know we got along got along great. Um, he was a lot you know a lot of fun and. And actually, he's his personality is almost the opposite of my mind. Well, he was more of a, uh, a calming influence uh, in the crew, than uh, which was very very helpful for me. <laughs> I needed somebody to uh, keep me keep me calm. So, but for- we had a, we had a, we had a great time together. We had we had some good crews, and um, you know our crew, uh, we always made it made it a crew. We never made it one guy. We didn't, we didn't do things for one guy. We, you know, my, my big thing on a crew and I told, I always used to tell the guys, my big thing on a crew was to make the number four guy look as good as the number one guy. That's, that's, that was our mission for the season was to make us all look good. Everybody looked good. The number one to the number four not just the number one and the number two uh, and leave the other guys alone. Everybody, everybody, we want, we want everybody to respect everybody the same way. Was was that something that you learned from Haller, from, from Shylock, from uh, Denkinger? Was that something you just came up with on your own? That's that. Some of that was from Bill Haller. Some of that camaraderie, some of the, the crew stuff was from Bill Haller. He was more of a, Bill was more of a crew guy. Um, Bill was a union guy. Um, you know, Bill was, um, um, you should have him on sometime. Bill was, uh, old school, old school. And, uh, he was a character. He is, he is awesome. He's an awesome, awesome crew guy. He was an awesome partner. He was just a, uh, awesome mentor. Um, he, he, he umpired by the seat of his pants. He just he just had the instincts. He reacted, you know. He would tell you things that you would never, you know, never think about about the rules. You know, you always say, "Don't worry about the rules. Just make sure that the that the team that committed that, that committed the infraction gets penalized." <laughs> that's always that was his saying, you know. And and you really stop and think about it. That's that's the truth. That's the main that's the main thing you want. If something happens, you got to make sure that the team that that committed the infraction gets penalized, whatever way, whatever way it is that they need to get penalized. So, Chuck, so, uh, that was awesome. Chuck one two three had a uh, a couple weird questions here. Number one, did you receive any mementos from the Len Barker perfect game? Um, yeah, I have a ball signed by Len Barker. I got a ball signed by. Uh, uh, the catcher, uh, gee, I can't remember his name now. Um, I can see his face. I can't, I'm getting yeah. old. Ron Hassey? Ron Hassey. I got, I got, uh, I've got, I've got a ball signed by both, both those guys. Yes. I couldn't tell you anything about history, but if it's about baseball, it's in that brain somewhere. I'll tell you that. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I I usually have a pretty good memory about about things. <clears throat> My wife always says, you know, when I send you to the store to get two things and you forget one. <laughs> when you talk to, when you talk to people about baseball, something that happens in 1975, and you know the hitter, you know the catcher, you know the ball, you know the, what pitcher, what the pitch was, you know all of that. Well, how's that? I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> Selective memory. My wife has that. Yeah. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck's other question was: You ejected Frank Robinson three times. Uh, did you find it hard for him? Uh, did you find it hard to get along with him? Very hard. Very difficult man to get along with. <clears throat> I liked him better when he was working for Major League Baseball. And Is we he got, an umpire supporter? He was when he was working for Major League Baseball. But not when he yeah, was managing the plane. No, not when he was managing the plane. No, 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 no. 1976. We he was man, player manager for Cleveland, and our crew. I think we were called um, the Murals Destroyers. <laughs> Lou Demuro was a crew chief in Cleveland. We were called the Murals Destroyers. I think <laughs> we had, I think we had maybe twenty twenty one ejections for Cleveland that year. I'm looking at that crew, Rich. Uh, that that was uh, Bill Kunkel and. Uh, Dave Phillips Dave, on that crew. Dave you. Phillips, yep. Demiro, Phillips, Kunkel, and myself. I was number four guy <clears throat> on that crew. You worked 166 and, games that year, Rich. <laughs> that, tell that to these guys today. <laughs> <laughs> somebody was, somebody was uh, dodging some, uh, pulling the tarp a little early on getaway day. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably you see how many play jobs you had that year too. Yeah, I'm looking at it. The one thing I love about when I look at your look at your stuff here, you never dodge the plate. Even in, you know, you see a lot of crew chiefs. You know, they come back, they they put themselves at third. You know, and you know they're going. <laughs> yeah. on, you know, they make sure they're when they're leaving, they work first and they're gone. You worked 864 plates and 838 and 827 at at at. Uh, first and second you it seems like goes back to the time when you wanted to work the plate when the guy wanted to put you on the bases you wanted to be back there oh yeah <laughs> yeah i i had a i had a situation i had a situation once in oakland when uh billy was managing uh oakland and him and i had a little we had a little feud going so i was working i was working the plate one night and um the catcher catcher said to me he said uh you know, Billy, Billy thinks you're sticking it up our ass. I said, he always thinks somebody's sticking it up his ass. <laughs> so, anyway, we're back and forth. So, the next day, um, I went to third, and the plate umpire got hurt in the second inning. I said, I got it, guys. <laughs> so, I went up, put the gear on, and came back. And he was he, he's questioning, why are you back there again? <laughs> I said, because I want to. <laughs> you think I'm sticking it? You think I'm sticking it up your butt? Well, here I am again. <laughs> he shook his head. But so how, how did Lou yeah, Demuro go the whole '76 with no ejections when when you and Bill and uh, and Dave were, were, were <laughs> Cleveland guys all over the place? <laughs> I'm not answering that. 
<laughs> Next question. <laughs> oh, listen, Lou Lou Demuro was the epitome of a man. He was he he was a great man. He was the nicest gentleman you ever ever want to meet. He that, he was a gentleman. He was a he was a great man. He loved his kids. He loved his family. And unfortunately, he got he got killed in a got run over by a car, <clears throat> and in Texas, because um, he was taking the wrong medication. <clears throat> but Lou was Lou was a great guy. Lou was a gentleman. Lou Lou could have been a priest. You know, he's just so nice. Just a just a great great man. Great man. I love Lou Demille to death. He was. He gave me a lot, a lot of good advice when he was with me, and I was a young umpire. I loved him to death. He was a great man. Brooklyn born. But he, uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. He worked at. He used to work in a men's shop um, in the off season, <clears throat> selling clothes, and he was the best dressed umpire going. He was always dressed up nice. Just a gentleman of a man. Gentleman. My wife known. still talks talks about him. He's, he's such a nice man. The only year, uh, yeah, seventy six. The only year you were on his crew full time. Yeah, a couple well, more. He, uh, I think he retired not too not too long after that. He had some injuries. It looks like by looking at his his uh, his statue. Yeah, he, yeah, he was sick. He he had he had some he had some. Uh, I'm trying to think, what was. I think he was. I believe he was diabetic. <clears throat> he was having problems with the medication. You know, back then, he, you know, you, you, you know, you don't know. But he was. Um, he he'd been sick. I think he had a hip. He had a hip problem or something. But he, you're right. He did. He did miss some games because he was. He was. He was sick. So uh, Noah Yingling, uh, I'm not is a huge fan of yours. Um, we hopefully. You know, don't need a restraining order, but he had like five questions, and I'm going to try to get to them because they're all reasonable. But he's like, you had some weird ejections. Um, if you remember these ejections, can you please tell me a little more about them? In uh, June 3rd, 1982, G. Michael, for arguing where a pitcher could take signs. Correct. Tell we, me about Tommy John. Tommy John was pitching, and he would straddle the rubber. And then he just, he wanted to take the sign straddling the rubber and then get on the rubber and throw. And I wouldn't let him. And G. Michael, you know, I stopped him a couple of times. G. Michael came out and he, just, he said, uh, leave my picture alone. I said, well, he can't do that. And he said, yeah, he can if he wants. Get the hell out of here. Get done. That was an easy ejection. <laughs> but it was a stupid ejection, really, because... He wasn't. He, you know, he just. You, you have to take. You have to take your sign with the foot on the rubber. You can't straddle the rubber and take your sign and then put your foot on the rubber and just pitch. Can't do that. Yeah. On September 29th, uh, nineteen eighty four, ejected Tim Foley for quote the way the balls were rubbed before the game. What? <laughs> 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 I used to rub the balls a little darker than the than your average guy, and uh, some guys would complain about it, and some guys would laugh about it. Well, Tim Foley was 
one day I one day we were in Detroit and he was getting the ball bag and he was checking the balls and looking and telling guys about the balls. So I went over and and I grabbed the ball bag and I told him, I said if I ever see you touch my baseballs again, I said I'm going to run you. Well, he happened to be with the Yankees. <clears throat> the day game was a Saturday. Never forget it. it was September, right? Is that what he said? Yep. Yeah, September. <clears throat> it was right at the end of the season, and I got to home plate, and Yogi came to home plate, and the other manager, I don't remember who was playing, came to home plate, and right when the national anthem started, I kind of glanced over at the dugout, and there was Foley grabbing the baseballs. So <laughs> Yogi was standing next to me, and I said, Yogi, when this anthem is over, you're going to need another shortstop. <laughs> Foley is gone. And he's what are you talking about? He, you know, he could. He, I don't know what are you talking about. I said Foley's done. You need you need to get another shortstop. This is going on while the national anthem is being played. So as <laughs> soon as it stopped, as soon as it stopped, I, I went over to the dugout. I said, "Get out of here. Go, go ahead. Go in the locker room and watch your football games because you're done. Get out of here." <laughs> of course, Yogi got mad. He said, "I don't have anybody else." So well, uh, you get somebody else. He's not playing. He's done. This is in Detroit. No, this, in, uh, no, this is in New York. This is in Yankee Stadium. Yeah. <clears throat> no, the first time was in Detroit. The okay. First time, the first time it was in Detroit. <clears throat> so we have a saying for guys like that: they're non-believers, right? Uh, so yeah, you gotta take care yeah. of business. That's right. The next question from Noah: uh, Lou Pinella, you ejected him for arguing. Uh, when Garcia broke up a mound cover, that was what it was listed as on the official ejection report uh, on online. Um, uh, so was this one of those? Pinello just just uh, was posterizing you on the mound, waiting for you to get out there to argue balls and strikes. Uh, <clears throat> what did, what did it say again? The report I didn't get that. Uh, it was it was 1988. It was um, 7:29. So that's July. It's my uh, Quick math tells me, and a retro sheet has it as um, arguing when Garcia broke up mound conference. You know, I don't remember that one. Oh, yeah, honest on. with you, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. It, it, it could have been, it could have been, but I, I really don't remember that one. Okay, two more from Noah here. Actually, three more. Uh, you ejected Earl Weaver four times. Um, can you just talk about Weaver in some regard? Um, was he as difficult to get along with as it has been reported? Yeah, uh, he, 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 Earl continued, continued to try to intimidate people. <clears throat> and in a lot of cases, uh, he got run because of protecting his players. Um, he would, if you, the way Earl Weaver worked, if you, if you were at first base one night and you had a close play, went against the Orioles, the next day when you went behind the plate, you were going to have to throw him out of the game. <clears throat> you throw him out, really, when you, you, you throw him out of a game and then you, <clears throat> you sit down to write the report and you feel silly writing the report because the silly things that he did. Um, I ran him one time in Baltimore against the Angels 
And uh, I'm trying to think of the guy that was pitching. Um, this guy, this guy had an excellent, excellent record against the Orioles, and he was pitching that day for the Angels. And uh, Orioles had a couple guys on base to hit a ground ball to the first baseman, and he kind of uh, he did a, a double take to second, and then finally threw it to second, and had a, I had to play back at first. And I, I called the guy safe because he was safe. Well, this the guy that was pitching took his hat off and threw it. Never said a word. Didn't say one word. He, I've never heard the guy talk. He's never never talked. <clears throat> threw his hat, and I, and I called the guy safe. And as he's walking back to the mound, I'm I'm walking right behind him, and I'm yelling at him about, about throwing his hat. And I'm, I want him to say something to me so I can throw him out. But he doesn't say anything. He just keeps walking. So Weaver comes out, and he, he wants to know why I didn't throw him out the game. And I said, well, I said, I didn't throw him out the game because he wasn't disputing my call. He says, well, how do you know that? I said, well, I don't know that. I don't know that he wasn't nothing because he never said a word, never said anything. So he said, well, if you throw your hat and you don't say anything, you're okay. I said, no, that's not what I'm saying. In this particular incident, yeah. He's going to, he's all right. He's fine. The next night I was behind the plate and early in the game in about the third, third or fourth inning, he yelled out of the dugout, where was that pitch? I said, it was outside. So he threw his hat. So I threw him out the game. So it was like, and he came out, he says, I didn't say anything. I said, you threw your hat and discussed my call. I can tell. How could you tell? I said, by your face. So again, you know, there's just silly ejections that he, he, he just goes on and on and on, um, but but with him, you always you always know you're going to have to eject him at some point. So it's really not that big of a deal. Speaking of guys that uh, got ejected a lot, you happen to get Bobby Cox, and a lot of people go, "Wait a minute, how did a guy that only umpired in the American League and uh, get Bobby Cox in a regular season game?" Well, uh, for for a couple of years of interleague play. Uh, the American League umpires umpired at the American League stadiums and so on and so forth. And uh, you uh, managed to, uh, to, 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 to get Bobby Cox. Um, was well, he, just- he, also, he also managed Toronto. But you never got him with Toronto. Oh, I didn't? Okay. Isn't that something? I don't re- what to say? What to say? It's interference this. non-call. This was June 22nd, 1998, interference non-call. <laughs> was it wow, memorable? It's okay. No, it wasn't. It wasn't to me. Um, a couple, couple more here. Um, uh, no, England wanted to know. Uh, Nolan Ryan and Robin Ventura. What was the decision to keep Nolan Ryan in the game? Well, the way I looked at it, I was working second base. No, Nolan Ryan did um, the same thing any normal man would do. Yeah, somebody come charge you, you would fight him. Put your put the glove down and fight him. He didn't go after Ventura. Ventura came after him. And that was all planned. We had we had known that there was going to be a problem. If somebody got hit from the White Sox, we knew that that they were going to charge the mound. As you could look at the video, you could see that Robin really didn't want to charge the mound. But it was almost like he had to. And well, we knew that. We we knew that ahead of time that something that they had made a pact that they were going to come after him if somebody got hit. So I 
I I just I made that decision. I decided to throw Ventura out and to keep um, Ryan in the game. Heck, I, I you know it's funny. I remember when uh, Ron Knight charged the mound against Tom Needenfjord in '86 in the National League. Neither player was ejected. And they were fined like fifty bucks, and they weren't suspended. I mean, neither player was suspended. These are just. You know, these things are just so much different now. If you even think about looking at the mound, you know, warnings are issued. Just the game is just different. Not that it's a bad thing. Um, one last one. You talked about um, looking at players in the eyes and trying to make sure things were okay so there wasn't lingering tension. Was there lingering tension uh, on August 5th, 1998, when you ejected Bobby Higginson for the second consecutive day? Absolutely. He just couldn't get over He was one of those kind of guys who just couldn't get over it. Well, he the what happened was the first one he I threw him out the first time. Um, he threw water out of the dugout. He didn't throw it at me. He was throwing it at John Hirschbeck. That was working the plate. They were complaining about balls and strikes to Hirschbeck. And John obviously didn't see him throw the cup of water out. He threw it right at him. So I threw him out from second base. And the next day, um, I went to first base. And I had a close play with him. And uh, uh, he yelled, and then he turned around and threw a gum at me. So I ran him again, second time. Damn it, Christmas. So, threw a gum. That guy, a little kid. Little, little kid tantrum. That was, his, uh, that was his MO. How about this? You know, Gil, you talk about hotheads. 1,362 career games, 18 ejections. Mm. I mean, that is a lot. A lot of bold-faced type. Eject, led the league in ejections three years with four. That's, uh, that's quite a few. Way too many. In, in my in my opinion. Uh, Up Nerd wanted to know, these are hard, this is a hard one. I, I don't like asking these, but I'll, uh, one of our loyal followers, uh, is there one piece of advice that you received that stuck with you throughout your career and made you a better umpire? And if so, who did it come from? That's the show I like. There you go. There you go. Up Nerd, hope that answered your question. One last one from uh, PriceRight89. Um, let's modernize the game. What do you think of Major League Baseball's changes to improve the pace of play? Do you think it's working? Why or why not? This is coming. We're asking a man who once had a two-hour, uh, 19-minute World Series game. You couldn't get a three-hour, 19-minute World Series game these days. Do um, you think this pace of play thing, this initiative, is uh, going to be effective? No. The only thing that's being effective that I can see is what they're doing in the minor leagues is making the pitchers work a little quicker. And I think, I think I'm seeing, I'm noticing some of the young pitchers that are coming up, especially the starters. Um, I see them getting on the mound and getting the ball and getting it ready to go a little quicker than, than your average uh, uh, guy that's been in the big leagues for a few years. So maybe, maybe they're getting in that habit down there. Um, but all the other stuff, all the clock and all that stuff, that's all Mickey Mouse stuff. That's just window dressing so that um, people people don't tell Major League Baseball that they're not doing anything about it. Final question. A birdie told me to ask you this. What's the deal when you were in the Marine Corps with not taking your socks off? <laughs> my socks on my my grandmother never never let us out of the house without socks on or shoes so i i i always sleep with socks on 
there's a big secret going out there right now. That had to be somebody real, real close to me to know that. <laughs> I will not reveal my sources. <laughs> All right. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. It has been a real treat. Uh, we can't wait to, uh, to put this up on the site. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank right. you, Rich. On behalf of Gil, I am uh, T-Mac. And uh, for all of us here at Close Call Sports and the Plate Meeting Podcast, we say so long. Happy umpiring, everyone. <laughs>